Today we get to finish up Jonah. Jonah, and we've been tracking this now for five weeks. This is week six, the final week of our series, Jonah and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad mission trip. And it's a little bit weird that we finish up Jonah today because those of you that are astute know that we actually finished Jonah's text last week, right? We worked ourselves through the four chapters of the book of Jonah and we ended last week and it ended abruptly. In fact, those of you, a couple of you had asked me, those of you that don't know the book of Jonah well, um, when I said, this is the end, you were like, that's not the end. What else? What happens next? Because it ends so abruptly, if you're not familiar with the book, you would think that we left some out that we were going to finish up this week. But we didn't leave any out that we're going to finish up this week. The book ends that abruptly because Jonah ends his ministry that abruptly. And I think that's what we have to deal with today is we have to figure out how we're going to learn from his mistakes. We can't quite be done yet because we can't let Jonah be something that we know a little bit more about. Instead, Jonah has to be something that we learn from. Jonah is someone that we need to learn from and we need to process through and we need to make decisions moving forward in our lives that learn from his mistakes and his problems. And Jonah had problems, right? Let's track through this. You you, you know this, right? Jonah um, had a call from God. He was a prophet, so a call from God is not unusual for him. He heard the word of the Lord and the word of the Lord says go, and Jonah's MO was to go. And Jonah didn't mind going and saying hard things. In fact, Jonah probably relished going and saying hard things to people. And I am going to be bluntly honest with you, I feel like that's a flaw in my spirit at times. I feel like it is a flaw in my spirit at times because when I know I'm right and I know you're wrong, I want you to know it too. And so with power and a holy authority that does nobody any good, I will bring it to you, brother. I I will bring it to you. And that's what Jonah liked doing, it seems like. Jonah didn't mind having the hard conversation. Jonah didn't mind saying hard things to people. Jonah didn't mind pushing. He didn't mind any of that. And so he did it. But what Jonah minded was when God asked him to go someplace that he didn't want to go. See, Jonah knew the power of God's word, and he knew that the power of God's word was going to bring repentance. When When Jonah was told to tell the city of Nineveh, in 30 days, God is going to destroy you because of your wickedness, Jonah knew full well that there was a good chance that the Ninevites would use those 30 days to repent, and he wanted nothing to do with their repentance because he wanted nothing to do with their salvation. So what did Jonah do? He ignored God and he ran away. He went to Joppa. He hopped on a boat, headed for Tarshish, which was the complete opposite direction of Nineveh, where God had told him to go. God wasn't having it. We learned early on in this series that you do not get to run away from God. God sent a storm. Remember, God actually sent the storm. See, that's critical to understand. The storm didn't just happen. It's not like the storm happened and God decided to use it. But we read in the word that God literally sent calamity upon Jonah and everyone he was around because he was desperate to get Jonah's attention because you can't run away from God. And ultimately, um, Jonah was tossed overboard and God arranged for, and I know it sounds fanciful and this is where we say, see, look, the Bible is just a story. No, 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 man, this is real. I know it sounds weird, but it's real. Okay. Um, Ancient words, holy, true, right? He's thrown in the water and God arranges for the big fish. Let's call it a whale to swallow him. 
and God preserves him in the belly of the fish for three days. All the while, working on his heart and trying to change his heart. But the reality is that Jonah's heart never changes. Jonah relents. Jonah relents, and he says, fine, God, I'll do what you want. So God spits him out, God releases him, and um, he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches the word, and people repent just like he thought. Um, And repentance, remember, repentance is real, man. They acknowledge that God has the authority to tell them what to do. They confess that they haven't been doing it, and they turn to do it in a completely different way. That's repentance. And so what happens is they turn and they go this direction. God relents, and then we, last week we saw that Jonah has a bloody tantrum. Jonah throws a fit. Jonah throws a fit because he wants them destroyed. God doesn't destroy them. We see the depths of Jonah's heart, and Jonah's heart is sick, and it is wicked, and it is bitter, and it is wrong, and it is everything that it's not supposed to be. And so God gives him a test. He says, are you really allowed to be this angry? Is it really right for you to be angry that I'm not destroying and damning people to hell? And Jonah says, yes, it's so angry I could die. And ultimately, that's where the book of Jonah ends. And we said that's where Jonah's ministry ends. We don't read anything else about Jonah, right? We don't know anything else about Jonah, and I'm convinced that we don't read anything else about Jonah, and we don't know anything else about Jonah, because at that point in time, Jonah hardens his heart, and he becomes useless to God for ministry. Somebody asked me this week, hey, Matt, since that's true, and Jonah hardens his heart, and he becomes useless to God in ministry, since that's true, will I see Jonah in heaven? I'm like, man, that's a good question that I was not prepared to answer. (laughs) But I thought about it. And so I'm going to say this. One, it's out of my pay grade. I don't get to know um, the hearts of people. But two, I think so. And I think so, and I want to clarify this, because I I think that the heart of the question uh, wasn't necessarily for himself, but it was for people that he knows and loves. And the heart of the question is this, can I somehow remove myself from the grace of God? And I know that's a thing that we talk about and wrestle with, and I know there are really smart people, people that are smarter than me, people that have studied the word of God their entire lives that that will end up thinking differently about this. Here's what I will tell you, I think. I don't think you can out-sin the grace of God. I don't think you can walk away from faith, but here's what I think you can do with the hardening of your heart. I think you can make yourself useful, I'm sorry, useless to God in ministry. And what he has called you to do and the purpose that he's called you to do in your life, you can waste it. And when you waste it, here's what happens. Your life loses purpose and your life loses joy. And then you end up sitting here listening to me on a Sunday morning and you're playing church And you're showing up and hoping that's good enough, but somehow in your heart, you know it's not right. Somehow in your heart, you know that you're hardened to what God has wanted to do, and you're not actively involved, and you have zero joy in in, in your experience with God, and you have zero passion for the purpose that he's given in your life. And listen, that is a terrible place to be. That That is where you are when you feel like you're just faking it day in and day out, and it's exhausting. And if that's where you are, then there is an antidote to that. And the antidote to that is for you to realize who you are, to ask God to soften the heart that you hardened, and to let him do that 
so that you can again, your heart can beat with his. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can start to be who you've been called to be. Okay? And so we're going to finish this today. And we're going to finish this today by seeing what we can learn um, from Jonah and how we can avoid making the very same mistakes that he made. And I'm going to tell you this, and it's going to sound weird, but you, Christian, if you are here today and you know Christ, um, if you are not here today, well, if you're not here today, that's weird. (laughs) Unless we got the video going. I know many of you watch online when you're not here. So if you're not here today, thanks for watching online. But if you are here today and you are not a Christian, then this part doesn't apply to you. It can It can, but there's something missing, and what's missing is you're submitting to and following Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. But if you're here today and you're a Christian, then this is true for you. You are in a better position to engage the mission of God than Jonah ever was. You, Christian, listen to me now. You can't miss this. You are in a better position to fully engage the mission of God than Jonah, a prophet of God, ever was. Somebody asked me how. That's a great question. And it's because of this one distinction that we're going to see as we get into the text today in 2 Corinthians. Here's the distinction. The Holy Spirit is not speaking to you. The Holy Spirit spoke to Jonah. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit did not dwell in the heart of Jonah. You, Christian, by virtue of the cross, by virtue of Christ's death and his resurrection, you are sealed. Corinthians tells us, the the New Testament tells us that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's why I say I don't think you can walk away from the grace of God because when you become a new creation, the grace of God in the presence of the Holy Spirit is actually a seal that he puts on your heart. What we read is that it's a down payment for future glory, that the Holy Spirit actually indwells you and does something in you so that The Spirit of God is now ever-present in your life. That is significantly different than we read in the Old Testament that we heard from the Lord. Jonah heard from the Lord. The Lord lives inside of you. You, Christian, are in a much better position because of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to be on mission than Jonah ever was. You could say amen. Like, that would be a good place to say amen. Like, if you were going to say amen today, when I tell you that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you and indwells in you and wants to help you live on mission, that would be a good time for you to be like, wow, amen, amen. yeah. Hey, thanks, I appreciate it. Um, now, if, if you want to say it unsolicited at some point in time, that would be cool, too. Um, I will give you, Carrie, Carrie whispered it. She was like, amen. What's that about? You're like, I agree quietly with you not wholeheartedly just no it's okay we can we can agree all right let's get into this we're going to look at first corinthians i'm sorry second corinthians chapter five and we're going to deal with this text and this is going to break down for us why we are in such a better position than jonah ever was and it starts with this either way this is paul writing that should say second corinthians that is my mistake i apologize if you're trying to track along in your bible that's second corinthians five not first. Um, 
But either way, this is Paul saying, either way, Christ's love controls us. The either way refers to um, something that we don't need to worry about much right now in this context. The either way is, do we act this way um, out of compulsion? Do we act this way out of whatever? And Paul says, either way, you're thinking about it all wrong. No matter what you do, here's the reality. Christ's love controls us. We believe, since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have died to our old life. And what's so critically, critically important about that and why we start there, we actually have come back, this is not the key text that we're going to deal with, but we start a little bit sooner is because you have to understand the heart of this. Either way, Christian, Christ's love controls you. See, right there, that statement should set off. Because that's not, listen, 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 listen to me. Track me here. You, you, you got to understand this. This is not an iffy. This is not a maybe, right? This is not a, hey, you know, if you were doing a good job, Christ's love really would kind of rule in your heart and would control you. No, no, that's not what this says. Either way, Christian, Christ's love controls you. Active, present tense, an ongoing control that happens in your life where Christ's love controls what you do, who you are, what you say, how you act, how you interpret things, how you translate things, how you see other people. Christ's love controls you. It's not an if. It's not a perhaps. It's not a perchance. It is a statement, a declarative statement that says, Christian, Christ's Love controls you. Now, will you screw it up? Of course you'll screw it up. I'll screw it up. I screw it up all the time. But this is your default setting. Some of you think way too highly of yourselves. And you think way too highly of yourselves. And I think way too highly of myself sometimes because what happens is, is I, my default setting is, is just to be bitter and angry. But what happens is occasionally I get good at letting the love of Christ control me. And I think, man, I nailed that today. But that should be my default. That should be my normal. So Christian, this is a tall order for you, but if you are doing this right, Christ's love controls you. Why? It's simple, because Christ died for all. And if I'm going to believe in the fact that Christ died for me, like this is, so this is, the, this is the part that rubs people the wrong way, but it is what it is, right? I mean, I can't make the word of God say something it doesn't say. If you are banking on the fact that Christ died for you to save your soul, then you ought to be banking on this too. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe, it's a one-two thing, I can't believe one and not believe the other, not and be logically consistent. Right? This is why we have issues with, I said, um, I came forward and I responded to, to the prayer, and now I just go live my life whatever way I want, or I was baptized, or I said my confirmation, or I, this happened to me when I was a kid, or I did this, and, and now I can just go do whatever I want, and I said the right words. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. Because the Bible doesn't teach that. You know what the Bible teaches? It says this, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also must believe that we have all died to our old life. If you are here today and you are a Christian, it not only means that Christ died for you, but what it means is that you also have died in return. And that's not metaphorical. Right? Some of us have grown up thinking that that's a metaphorical death. 
right? That what that means is we, we substitute. When, it, when we say that we believe that we have died also, what we substitute is, and, and well-meaning preachers like myself maybe have, have taught this to you or said this, or, or, or we've just been logical, we think, and we're like, well, how can I physically die and still live for Christ? That doesn't make sense. So what we do is we say, well, that's a metaphorical death. That's a willingness to die. But that's not what that is. That's talking about a very real death that you have to go through. And it is a spiritual death. The spiritual part of you that is estranged from God must die for you to follow God. And it's weird, and I know it doesn't make sense, but trust me, it's real. And we're going to see that in the rest of the text, how that really comes out. But that's what's saying here. Christ's love controls us. Christ's love controls us because we believe that Jesus died for everybody. And if Jesus died for everybody, that means that everybody needs to die right back to our old way of life. Okay? It also means that when you're not in Christ, you're not in your natural state. Your natural state is in Christ. When you're not in Christ, you're not in your natural state. It's a a hard place to be. We keep going. 15. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they'll live for Christ who died and was raised for them. And so this just keeps going in the same vein. It says, okay, by the way, here's what happened, right? Um, Christ's love controls you. It controls you because Christ died for all. And so therefore you died to your old self right? And then this goes back. Christ died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. They won't live for themselves because they've died to themselves. Instead, they'll live for Christ. Now, this is this, is this um, weird thing that needs a little explanation. And some of you are like, Matt, I got this. Stop talking about this. And I'm going to say, you know what? Okay, great. But maybe somebody else doesn't and it's worth the wait, right? So let's dig in here for a second because this is the heart of the gospel, If you think you are right with God, then what I'm going to say should resonate so loudly in your soul. And if you aren't sure, if you've been coming here to church or you're visiting for the first time ever and you're not sure and you're like, am I right with God? Am I destined for heaven? Does my life live its purpose? Is that true? Then dig in here because this is what you need to hear and this is what you need to understand and this is what you need to be able to reconcile in your heart. Those who receive his new life, how do you receive his new life? We read all through the Old Testament, I'm sorry, all through the New Testament. The gospel is what Jesus says when he says, I um, am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for my sheep. And those who believe in me, they'll die like everyone else, but they'll live again. And then we read that salvation is by grace through faith for those who believe. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that, that he'll be faithful to save you. And all of these things, we read all of these things and here's the heart of it. Here's what it means. To receive his new life means you do this. It's a simple process that says, you know what? I've tried to live my life my way. And in living my life my way, I have jacked it up. Each and every one of us here is guilty of sin. We have messed it up. Some of our sins are small and minor. I mean, like all of my sins are small and minor right? Like I forget to say, excuse me after I burp or that's not a sin anyway. No, I I know. Aubrey's looking at me like, dude, you're right. Most of my sins are major and loud and messy. I'd be willing to bet most of yours are too. Some of them, right? Some of them are little. A lot of them are huge. All of them keep me away from God. 
because he is perfect and he can't have imperfect in his presence. And believe it or not, this in all of its glory is imperfect. Gasp, no. It's true. I can take it. But I got to be honest with you. All of this that I'm looking at, while it looks better than this, it's not perfect either. And so Romans tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none of us that is right with God on our own standing. But he died for everyone. So some, not everyone, some, those that decide to receive his new life, right? You receive his new life by saying, look, I have messed it up and I am broken. But Jesus is the son of God, God in flesh. He lived a perfect life and he died on the cross so that he could take my sin onto himself. And here's what you have to do. You have to recognize that you're broken. You have to understand that Jesus is the son of God and that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And then here's the kicker. Here's what you have to do. You have to say that I accept it. I want him to pay the penalty for me. And then that's the easy part, right? Everybody's like, well, yeah, I'll take that. Uh, Right? Here's the rub. It also means that to receive his new life, you have to do this next part that says, I will no longer live for myself, but instead, I will live for Christ. See, we have such a, a, in this country, in this culture, I think in this city, we have such a truncated version of the gospel. And so what we do is we think, yeah, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that Jesus is the son of God. I recognize that he died for me. I'm in. Yeah, Okay, but that's not enough. And that's not me putting restrictions on it. It's God saying what's next. And God says what's next. You receive new life. And because you receive new life, if it's really new life, if it's really real in your heart, if you really are this new person, then you will no longer live for yourself. You will no longer be the most important person in your life. Everything will no longer revolve around you. Look, I was always a good person. I was always a good person. I was never a bad guy. But as a good person, everything was still always about me. And now, in Christ, I no longer live for myself. It's not about me anymore, but now I live for Christ. Because Christ died and was raised for me. And so what happens is we experience this thing and, and, and it bleeds. It keeps going, right? Oh my goodness. Man, that's it. Right. So because of this, I stop being who I was and I stop evaluating others from a human point of view. Right? At one time, we thought of Christ from merely a human point of view, but how differently we know him now. We were right now, and, and, and Ed Stetzer made a point about this text. He, he basically said this, um, that the idea is that it's like you're wearing glasses, right? You have new lenses. We've talked about lenses here and how we see the world and how we see things, biblical and unbiblical and how all of that works. But basically the point is this, we don't have to see things in Christ the way that we used to see things outside of Christ. There's a reason that we're called to offer radical forgiveness. I mean, have you ever really been wronged? Like I say this to people sometimes um, because they'll come to me and they'll talk about a way that they've been hurt. And I'll, and, and I'll talk to them about the need to forgive. 
and the need to forgive because that's what we're called to do in Christ is forgive. Um, and I'll ask them, what advice are you getting from your friends? And there is such a marked difference, right? The friends that have nothing to do with Jesus, burn him, burn her, burn down the bridge, make sure everybody knows about how they've wronged you, torch them and walk away. But I always ask, so, so, so who, who the, what Christian is speaking into your life? Because here's the thing, if you, if you aren't evaluating things from a merely human perspective, right, because we don't do that anymore, we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view, then when somebody wrongs me, how do I look at it? You gotta forgive. You gotta offer grace. Right, you gotta extend the heart of Jesus. You gotta pour mercy out in this situation. It doesn't mean you put yourself back in a dangerous situation. It doesn't mean that you put yourself back in a position where people walk all over you. But it does mean that you don't harbor anger and bitterness. Why? Because you don't evaluate from a human perspective. You evaluate from the heart of God. You see things differently. Your lenses are different. Jonah didn't have this. When Jonah looked at the Ninevites, when Jonah looked at the Ninevites, Jonah saw wicked people that had hurt his friends. And when he looked forward, he saw wicked people that were going to destroy his nation. But what God asked Jonah to do was look at the Ninevites through his lens and not to evaluate them from a merely human perspective. And that's what we're called to do as Christians through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a different lens. We are called to evaluate differently. That's why it says this, right? We've stopped doing that. And then Paul says, here's evidence that we have to stop doing it. Because the one time it was a no-brainer, the one time it should have been the easiest evaluation ever, we jacked it up. Because they evaluated Jesus and they found him to be wrong and a sinner and terrible and awful and they killed him. He's like, so from a human perspective, we're obviously not very good at this because we had the perfect, sinless, spotless son of God. We evaluated him from a human perspective. We found him wanting, we found him evil, and we murdered him. So obviously, we shouldn't be evaluating people this way. And when you evaluate people, when you judge people, what you're doing, whether you know it or not, is you are elevating yourself to the role of God. Because what you're deciding is you know everything that there is to know, and you have every bit of information that you need to have, and you know everything that there is, and you are in a position to pass judgment. Newsflash, you aren't God, neither am I. But when I, and listen, I am not meaning to indicate that I am perfect in this in any way, shape, or form. But when I pass judgment, because I make mistakes all the time, when I pass judgment, what I'm doing is I'm trying to act like I'm God. And in Christ, with the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't get to act that way. So we stop evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought Christ merely from a human point of view, but we know better now, and so we don't do this. We don't judge. Right? And this is, this is the thing I need you to understand. This is hard for us because we get, um, we get riled up. We live in a culture of outrage. We get our feelings hurt. 
we get offended, we get upset, and we get outraged. Somebody says something we don't like, we get outraged. Somebody posts something on Facebook we don't like, we get outraged. Facebook acts in a way I don't like, I get outraged. Non-Christians act like non-Christians, guess what I do? I get outraged. It will always shock me how many Christians get upset at non-Christians for acting like non-Christians. I will never understand why we think non-Christians should act like Christians. Why would they? There's no love of Christ that compels them because they're not made new. But we get so outraged that we, we just want to, ugh, we just lash out, we do this and, and it. But listen, when you're in Christ and your perspective is right and you see things well, this is another Stetzer thing. Um, when you see things well, you can engage outrage. When people are outraged, you, from a different perspective, not judging people from your human eyes, but through the power of Christ and the power of Holy Spirit, you engage outrage. You have dialogue about outrage. You build bridges. You reach out. You connect. You love unconditionally. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean free passes exist, but it means you love unconditionally. You act like Christ. What we do instead of building bridges, oftentimes, and when I say we, I'm not talking about us necessarily as a congregation. I'm talking about us as a church, as a whole church. What we tend to do in this country, especially, instead of building bridges, is we like to burn those things down. And we set them on fire. And we do it in the name of Jesus. Some of you know that. Some of you have been so hurt by the church, you almost never stepped foot in this building. You know who you are. I mean, some of you have been so hurt by the church that you almost never stepped foot in this building because the church, instead of building a bridge, burned it down. On, on behalf of Christians, if that's, I apologize. I mean, because we make mistakes and we're, we're, we're human and we don't do it as well as we should all the time, but, but our goal can't be that. We engage outrage. We don't get outraged. We got to knock that off, okay? We keep going. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. By the way, you know this is my favorite. It's the one tattooed on my arm. I've told you that before. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old person is gone. The old life is gone. A new life has begun in its place. This is the process of what um, Jesus is talking about when he talks to Nicodemus in John 3, right before the passage that you know well, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, um, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I don't actually use the old King James Version, but that's how I remembered that. So there's a begotten, there's a believeth, there's all of those fancy words. Basically what it means is God sent Jesus so that when you believe in Jesus and follow Jesus, you have eternal life. That's what that means, okay? And we get this, and it says anyone who belongs to Christ, anyone who has become a follower of Christ is born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you can't be my follower unless you're born again. And Nicodemus is like, man, that doesn't work. How can I be born again, right? I'm a grown man. I'm a really grown man. How do I do that a second time, right? And Jesus says, no, you're, you're missing the point. This is that spiritual death that we're talking about. You have to die to your old way of life, and then you have to agree to live in this new way of life. And you don't have to do that. All you have to do is give up. 
we're going to do baptisms later, and everybody being baptized has been through this new birth. Everybody being baptized has gotten to the point where they say, you know what? I give up. I can't do it. It's not working for me. And they give up, and they say, okay, Jesus, it's you. I am letting go of my old life, and I am engaging in my new life, and here's the deal. They won't do it perfectly, right? Because there's this residue from our old life. Think of, think of it a little bit like duct tape. Right, you ever duct tape something? I mean, come on, you've duct taped stuff before. You're with me. He's, he's like, I've duct taped. <laughs> yeah, you have. When I was younger, it was the thing, too, because you had the paperback Bibles. And, you know, the pages fall. They, they, the pages fall. Look, my whole Bible falls out of this one. Anybody looking for a Christmas idea? I need a new preaching Bible. But for like the last six years, this one's broken in. I, I got my notes in it, so I'm not sure I want to mess with it. But, but we used to have these old paperback um, Bibles. And uh, like invariably, because you'd walk around with them like this and you weren't nice to them, um, they were well-loved. The insides would start to fall out. So it used to be the thing to take duct tape and duct tape all the way around the Bible to hold it together. And that was all fine and good, except eventually what would happen is the duct tape would start to peel off. It would start to fray. It would start to come off. It would start to get gross. And so you'd, you'd pull it off um, and it was gone, but there was this sticky residue that was left. And that happens with your old life sometimes. So sometimes we wonder, if, if I'm really a new creation, why do I still struggle with the things that I used to struggle with? If I'm really a new creation, why do I still harbor hard feelings sometimes? Why do I still sin even though I don't want to? What happens is, it doesn't mean that you're not a new creation in Christ. You are born again, you are new. But what happens is, we get this sticky residue that's left. And part of the process, why you dig into church, why you dig into growth, why you pay attention on Sundays, why you have accountability people that you talk to, why you engage in small group and why you grow, why you go to celebrate recovery, why you do all of these things. Why? Because you're trying to wash that off. Right? You're trying to be new. Okay, but, but what, what I, I, the imagery falls apart because here's the thing that you have to know, though. Jesus isn't trying to clean up your life. Jesus wants to transform your life. See, and so think of it this way. That Bible that, that, that I took and I duct taped, that was me trying to clean up a mess, right? I'm trying to, I did that with this thing. You know what I did? I got out the rubber cement I mean, I used rubber cement to try to get this thing back together. I tried to clean it up. I tried to make it presentable. I tried to fix it the best I could, right? And sometimes we get the idea that what Jesus wants to do when we become a Christian is he wants to clean us up. He wants to rubber cement our broken parts, and he wants to give us a fresh coat of paint, and he wants to make us look nice, and he wants to get us cleaned up. But Jesus isn't trying to clean you up. Jesus wants to make you new. It's called transformation. He wants to transform you into a new creation. And when you are a new creation, yes, there is residue that you have to keep scraping away. But you are a new person. And because you're a new person, you see things differently. Jonah wasn't a new person. You are in Christ. And your primary job as a Christian is to represent Christ well. Your primary job as a Christian is not to have your needs met. Your primary job as a Christian is not to be comfortable. 
your primary job as a Christian is not to have church look like the way you want to have it look. Your primary job as a Christian is not to play. Your primary job as a Christian is to represent Jesus well. Track this now. If you you go from the beginning, the love of Christ compels you because Christ died for all, therefore you die to yourself. And when you die to yourself, you are now living for Christ and you live for Christ because you are a new creation. The old you is gone, the new you is born in its place. And as the new you born in its place, your primary job is to represent Christ well. How many of you know people that represent Christ well? You can go ahead and raise your hand. If you know somebody that represents Christ well, you can raise your hand. See, that should be every single person in this room. Unequivocally, no holds barred. I don't care if you're visiting for the first time or not. Your hand should have shot straight in the air about knowing somebody that represents Christ well. And church, if you are a regular attender here, it should offend you. It should hurt you. It should scare you. It should burn in your heart that there are people that live in this community that do not know somebody that represents Christ well. Because that is on you. And it's on me. Because if we aren't representing Christ well, then what in the world are we doing? We're acting like Jonah. And the whole reason we go through a sermon series like Jonah is so that ultimately we can get to this point at the end where I can stand up here and I can be maybe a little louder than I mean to be. I can say, don't act like that. It should burn in you that there are people in this community that are going to hell. It should burn in you even more that there are people in this community that are going to hell that have never met somebody that represents Jesus well. Because it's either true or it's not. It's either true or it's not. Hell is either real or it's not. But our primary job is to represent Jesus well. This is the part where it all fell apart for Jonah. He loved to represent Jesus well when it was easy. He hated it. He refused it. He balked at it when it got uncomfortable. And I'm asking you, Christian, to embrace the uncomfortable because you have one job as a follower of Christ, and that is to represent Jesus well. That's what we read about in these last three verses. This is where we'll end. Sorry, these last four verses. Uh, And all of this, right, the death to yourself, the living in Christ, the new perspective, the old life being dead, the new life being born in its place, all of it is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And because we're in He's given us this job. He's given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. You track that, right? No longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. See, this is your job as a Christian. Some of you, some of you are so confused about what you're supposed to do as a Christian, right? You're like, well, as a Christian, I just need to live a moral life. And the church is guilty of perpetuating that. For so long, the church has been guilty of perpetuating that. Say, yes, as a Christian, we want you to live a moral life. So we stand up here and we preach about how to live a moral life. Like somehow, living a moral life is the key to all of your needs being met and to everything working the way that it should. Yes, live a moral life. Why? Because you are dead to yourself and you are alive in Christ. But that is a byproduct. It's not the mission. 
The mission is not for you to live a moral life. Living a moral life is because you've died to yourself and the power of Christ compels you and the love of Christ compels you and the Holy Spirit lives in you and you can be different. Done. That's a byproduct of your salvation. The mission of your salvation is this. You speak for God. When you tell people that there is a God in heaven who is no longer counting their sins against them because of the person of Christ Jesus. You have been given a message of reconciliation. When you try to figure out what is my role as a Christian, it is not to live a moral life. You live a moral life because you are a Christian. Your job as a Christian is to speak for God when you tell people that their, their sins no longer have to count against them. Because there's a God in heaven who wants to reconcile. Right? And, and, and first and foremost, this is it. People, people just need Jesus. What do I do? How do I get useful in the kingdom? What's the role that God wants for me? You know, I mean, we take these, these spiritual gift assessments. I'm all for a spiritual gift assessment. I've taken many of them. My primary giftedness, anybody have a guess? It's teaching preaching, teaching. Um, Some of you are like, "Uh, take it again. (laughs) We can talk about that privately. Okay. You know, my anti-gift is, for those of you that are looking at the clock, time management (laughs) is what it is, right? Okay. I'm all fine with spiritual gifts assessments. Take them, figure out how God's wired you, do all of that stuff, but you never have to be confused about what it is that God wants for you. You know what God wants for you? God wants for you to get people Jesus. People need Jesus. You know what they don't need? They don't need your angst. They don't need your judgment. They don't need your harshness. They don't need your condemnation. They don't need your free pass either. They don't need your acting like everything is okay when we all know it's not. You know what they need? They need Jesus. And God has given you the job of being a minister of reconciliation. Right? Let's finish the text. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Everyone, every human being's natural state, their natural intention was to belong to God. Because of sin, we all are away from God. We are born broken. This is the nature of the world. It's the nature of what happens because of the fall. We are all supposed to be with God because of sin. We are all away from God. And our job is to get people Jesus. Why? Because we are supposed to be speaking for Christ when he says, come back to God. Christ walks through the towns Right? As a minister of reconciliation, as the key and the agent of reconciliation, he walked through communities. He stood on hilltops. He spoke to people. He touched people in healing ways. He said hard truths. But everything he did and everything he was about was this thing come back to God. And now, Christian, you've been given the same task. You speak for Christ. It's as if his ministry on earth continues because you have picked up his mantle and you speak for him 
when you say, come back to God. Come back. Right? For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through sin. You're not talking in your own power. You're not saying come back to God because I have the power to forgive you. Come back to God because there's something wonderful about me. You're saying come back to God because God made Christ who never sinned to be sin so that you could be made right through him. It's the trade of eternity. It's called the imputation of righteousness. Christ took, if you think about it like it's a shirt, right? And your shirt is dirty and gross and it's bad. And he took it and he put it on himself. And he took his shirt, which was holy and righteous and perfect, not holy like it had holes in it, but holy like set apart. And he gave it to you and you put it on. And we speak for Christ when we say, hey, 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 Jesus did this thing. Come back to God. There's one thing that we learned from Jonah. It's this. It's simple. It's straightforward. You can't hate people and save them at the same time. Hate always trumps good intentions. You can't hate and evangelize. And Christians, we love evangelism. We just love it when somebody else does it. But it's on us. But you can't hate and save people at the same time because hate will trump your good intentions. You've just got to love people, period. If there's one thing I want you to remember, remember from Jonah, it's simply that. When you don't deal with the bitterness and the anger and the hate that you have in your heart for people that are far from God, or when you have a lazy, lackadaisical attitude about the people that are far from God, that will always trump your good intentions. You have to love people that are far from God. You have to make yourself available to them. You have to make yourself willing to engage them. You have to say, you know what? We're going to scrap our comfortable family Christmas Eve service, and we are going to have one at Tilford, and I am going to go sit with people that I'm not even related to. Yeah, and I know it's Thanksgiving or, no, I said Christmas Eve. I know it's Christmas Eve, and I know that I love to be with my family, but you know what? There's somebody sitting over there that's all by themselves, and they need to know Jesus, and I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to love them, period. It means we engage a merger with another church that's like-minded because it helps us do our mission better. Right? These aren't willy-nilly things that we talk about around here. They're intentional and they're purposeful because they are about the gospel of Jesus Christ and they are about us speaking for Jesus when we say come back to God because, because God made Christ so that you can have righteousness and you can come home. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the book of Jonah um, and, and the picture that it is to us to see your heart for lost people and how our broken heart for lost people gets in the way. We could sum it up with that, that, that you have a heart for people that are far from you and our heart sometimes gets in the way of doing our job. But through Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have given us a role to be ambassadors of grace, to be ministers of reconciliation, to speak for Jesus. What a privilege to be able to speak for Jesus when we say, come back to God, because he is ready and willing to forgive you through Christ. 
Father, help us to be on mission. Help us to build bridges rather than burning them. Help us to love people to the end of ourselves so much that we're not playing and we're not pretending, but that we're just giving it all away. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. Amen.